everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. The dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. My name is Matt, and I'm here, as always, with Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking? Dude, I am good, yep. but I am only drinking water because the babies no longer let me sleep, and if I even had a sip of beer, I'd just be out. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, that's weird because I'm also drinking water today, so we're both being, I guess, parents? Responsible? Though, yeah, responsible? Yeah. yeah. All right. all right. Well, okay. We have no beer chats today, and that's great. Our catchphrase today comes from Aaron in our Facebook community. Thank you very much, Aaron. The dream is free, but the hustle is sold separately. So we have a special episode today. We have a guest on our show, and he is the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix, Mark Randolph. Oh, hi, Mark, and welcome <laughs> to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. Pleasure to be with you. All right, so let's let's get into um, the story. I mean, you you started Netflix. Is that that's correct, right? That would be a correct statement. Yes, sir. How did that How did that happen? Like, where did that all begin? It fell into your lap, right? It was, it was <laughs> oh, of course. Well, no, you know, uh, most of these uh, great outcomes start from less than auspicious beginnings, and I think Netflix is probably no different. And it really came about because I was about to lose my job. Mm. Uh, I was uh, one of the companies I had founded previously had been sold to a big company, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden that big company was being sold, but this time they didn't need me, and so I was going to be cast off onto the heap of discarded uh, software executives, like fired. Yes, but fired in the wonderful way. But no, being technically made redundant, which is the euphemism, mm. which says we've already got one of you. Sure. And so uh, off you go. But mm. you know, it was a great type of um, fired because they basically say these are two public companies which are merging, and so they go, "This is going to take six months. We need you to come to work every day, mm. but you don't need to do anything." And I uh, ba okay. basically said, "That sounds." Sounds pretty damn good to me. You're gonna keep, <laughs> you'll pay me. You'll invest my options. I have a nice office. Yeah, and I have time. So my initial thought was perfect. I'll start another company because I I had been either started or involved in starting five other companies up to that point. So okay, this was kind of the obvious next step. So you are a true entrepreneur. I am a serial entrepreneur. I think is the term. Is the term yes. And uh, this company that I was working for was a company that had been started and was being run by a guy named Reed Hastings, who obviously mm. plays pretty importantly in the story that follows. Sure. And Reed was also being made redundant. And it turned out that Reed and I both lived in the same town. Mm -hmm. And we used to carpool together to work. So here you have two guys commuting back and forth to work to their largely do-nothing jobs. <laughs> right. Thinking what comes next. Yeah. And as before, I said, for me, I'm going to start something new. A Reed did not want to start another company. He wanted to now um, take what he had learned and try and change the world, change the world of education specifically. Mm. And he was going to become an educational philanthropist, but first go back to school, get a higher degree in education. But, you know, once you're an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. So right. yeah. his plan was that. We would come up with an idea together that he would be the angel investor. Okay. I would start and run the company. Huh. But first, we needed that idea. Right, right. And the way we did it was basically using our carpool time, which was maybe 45 minutes to an hour driving from our oh, home lot. in Santa Cruz over to Sunnyvale on the heart of mm -hmm. Silicon Valley mm -hmm. to brainstorm ideas. 
And at the time, I I wasn't like I was a videophile that I was like really yeah. into French directors or you know <laughs> Kurosawa I, or I, you know I was like you know I, I had young kids I was ended up most of my time watching Disney movies, sure. so that was not the criteria. What I did want to do was do something on the internet. The hmm. internet was brand new. This was 1997. Amazon okay. sold books, and that was it. Yep. Hmm. And so I said, this is awesome. This is the next wave of commerce. I want in. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be on the internet. I wanted to sell something on the internet. And ideally, I wanted it to use personalization and or subscription, uh, hmm. both of which I'd had a lot of experience with in previous companies. Okay. So you were that, you were using your experience and your skill set. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw the power of the internet for selling things and using personalization. Right. So. The way it would work is I would sit in the car and I'd brainstorm ideas and I'd pitch them to read. And mm-hmm. just, you know, looking back, they were ridiculous ideas. You know, one of them was um, personalized shampoo by mail. That <laughs> is a actual thing now, by the way, just so yeah, you know. I was, I guess, 23 years uh, too soon. <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 you know, I told I go, read, this is brilliant. You know, We'll have people cut off a lock of their hair. They'll send it in. We'll have our scientists in the lab formulate the custom shampoo, and that will be a subscription product. And of course, he found all kinds of flaws. So out the window, that one goes. Sure. So then a couple of days later, okay, here is the big one. Custom dog food. Mm. We'll formulate a blend specifically for your breed, for its size, for its gender, for its activity level, for your yeah. climate. And that too, you know, ridiculous idea. Sounds great, um, though. I thought they were awesome. Feel like it, it feels like it would work. It might even be a thing. I don't know specifically <laughs> about that one, but it might be a thing. Uh, I think that one also. I was twenty three okay. years too okay. soon. Yes. Uh, and then the other idea I brainstormed, which I also thought was great, was doing video rental by mail, which is not selling video, but actually emulating what a video rental store was. But again, this was summer nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, so, was that still VHS? That was still VHS. Okay, all right. And so, you know, I did some research uh, in my office with nothing to do and quickly figured out these are too expensive, they're too heavy, they're too fragile, not going to happen. So that one also is tossed out the window on the heap with the shampoo and the dog food. Yes. But then one of those lucky breaks, which happens uh, many, many times in the story, not just of Netflix, but of any startup, uh, where things kind of fall into place when you didn't expect it. And in this case, Reed one morning mentioned he'd read about this new technology called a DVD, that they were going to bring movies out on this little CD format, mm-hmm. thin and light. And I remember in the car that it was that moment kind of similar to like when you're cleaning up your, your apartment and under a chair, you find a missing jigsaw puzzle piece. Oh, yeah. And you look and you go, oh, man, that's the piece that completes this puzzle that I've been working on for weeks. Right. And it was like that. It allowed us to dust off this idea which had already gotten pretty far down the path. And mm-hmm. we realized this actually enabled that old idea. Now, but, I have a question. Like, it, you, you had six months of you guys carpooling right yeah yeah do you remember in which month you had the idea yeah this was uh, we, we actually agreed to sell the company uh in february mm-hmm. and this was probably at april okay so a few so, a few months of bad ideas 
Yeah, April, May was when they began uh, testing, uh, doing test market for the DVD. And okay, and that's why, because I, I, I remember it was really early in DVD. It wasn't even available because when, when Reed and I, you know, we did the thing which a classic entrepreneur does, which is rather than driving to the office and starting work on the business plan or putting the slides together for the pitch deck, we go, mm-hmm. well, let's just see if this actually holds water. Mm-hmm. So turned the car around and drove back down to Santa Cruz and couldn't find a DVD, obviously, sure. uh, but figured what the hell we'll use a CD and went and bought a used music CD. Do you remember what it was? To, uh, I don't really. <laughs> okay. I think it was might have been Patsy Cline Greatest Hits. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, I'll confess to you guys, I'm not 100% sure. That was okay. lost in the, uh, in the music archives of history. Yes. But uh, I did go back a couple of days down, buy a little pink envelope, the type you'd put a greeting card in, mm-hmm. and put the CD in the envelope and address it to Reed's house, get a stamp, and we put it into the slot in the Santa Cruz post office, and then go to work. And then less than a day later, when Reed picks me up the next morning to carpool to work, he holds up this little pink envelope with an unbroken CD in it that had gotten to his house in less than 24 hours for the price of a stamp. And, and you were testing the breakage? Were you testing like, will a CD break in the mail? Yeah, because we start, you know, we, Reed's going, you know, we have this new thing called DVD, and we're all of a sudden we go, well, maybe we could actually mail that. Maybe we mm. could even use the postal service. And then you get into one of those debates, the kind of debates you used to get into pre-Google, where you go, would it make it? You know, What would it cost? Is it less than an ounce? And, and you go, well, let's just go, Find out. Let's find right. out whether we can actually mail a disc. And and the, and the real kind of un that story has been told, but it's kind of interesting that it in some ways it was a false positive, because as we found out only much later, because Reed lives in Santa Cruz and because we were mailing it in the Santa Cruz post office, it went through something called the local mail flow, which is different. Than the out of town mail flow, which is why you have the, used to have those two different slots at the post office for local oh, mail yeah. and out of town, and the local mail is taken out of the box and immediately slotted in for the post for the postal route by hand. Oh, the other mail goes off to a big uh, big brother like industrial complex with huge pieces of machinery running at high speeds and bending the envelopes around rollers, mm. and I think if we had mailed the CD to Reed's house and say, uh, Palo Alto, mm-hmm. it would have gotten mangled, broken. And, uh, I don't know. The now idea. we'd all be, uh, right. it would be like uh, dog food and chill or something like that. Right. 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 So, okay. And then at that point you, you, I mean, you, you basically tested it very quickly said, cool, this works. And you had to wait for the DVD industry to come about. Right. Cause so you, there was a, there were, I mean, I would imagine the period between, the idea of testing it and actually starting the business was, I don't know how, how fast did that happen? Well, so this was probably April or May and I spent the summer figuring out what would it actually take to start a company? Cause this was all unproven. And one of the questions was mm. how many DVDs are there going to be? How many DVD players are going to sell? And this was also, again, the dawn of the internet age. So this wasn't like you could just go on to Amazon Web Services and spin up an instance and then sure. hook up your to a PayPal account. You had to build everything. So I was trying to figure out how hard will that be? Yeah. So it took us all the way until October 
even to decide whether or not we were going to fund this or not. Mm. And it took us a while to figure this out, but it was in October that Reed wrote us the check for $1.9 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hired a dozen people, got us an old crappy office uh, in an old bank building. Uh, and we spent about six more months uh, building this simple e-commerce website uh, and didn't wasn't until April of 2000 of 1998 pardon me yeah right that we launched uh netflix wow so it took you a uh, half a year almost to just to build the website half a year and about a million dollars so the <laughs> type of thing you could probably do in a, a half an hour now for about yeah, a shopify site. A month. <laughs> right yeah. yeah exactly boom unbelievable done. and so in the beginning i mean how was how was business like what was what was what was happening <laughs> <laughs> so you know uh, my book is called That Will Never Work uh, because pretty much that was what I was universally told by every single person I pitched this idea to. I mean, including my wife who said that'll never work. Right. But investors, employees, friends, and they all had one reason or another why they were also convinced it was not going to work. And lo and behold, after we launched uh, this website, uh, it turns out they were right. It didn't work. And it, Largely, it's because we didn't know what to do at the beginning. Huh. This was there was no real innovation here besides the fact that we were one centralized location. We were mailing DVDs to people. There was a seven day rental period. We had due dates. We had late fees. It was all a cart, mm-hmm. and so no surprise, people didn't really take to this. I mean, there was a Blockbuster on every corner. There was 9,000 Blockbuster stores. So uh, they had to have some compelling reason to want to go to this little website and willing to wait uh, a couple of days for the movie to arrive, keep it for a few days, and then mail it back. So Mm -hmm. it was not promising, but we did begin learning. We began learning what worked about how to find DVD owners. We began to see the types of content they wanted. We began to see how long they kept their DVDs. And it began this long, long process of iterating our way toward, we hoped, a business model which actually would be repeatable and scalable. Yeah, it sounds like you were doing big data work even back then to figure out Right. Absolutely. I'm yeah. glad you used that term. Actually, I mean, big data may be the wrong term, but certainly very, very analytical. Because if you look at the, some of the DNA in this company, you know, my I didn't mention it before, but my previous startups had been some of them had been in ma- the magazine business, which is very dependent on circulation, on subscriptions, which is very data driven. For the first half of my career, I was a direct marketing guy a junk mail guy, a catalog oh, guy. Oh, got it, yeah. Which is all extremely measurable. And everything there is about the analytics. And then you take me with 20 years of direct marketing experience and you pair me with Reed Hastings, who is a mathematician computer scientist. And now you have these two people who yeah. both have this tremendous faith and confidence in the data. And so- from the beginning, that was built into the company. I mean, we would take huge leaps of intuition, but never without agreeing in advance about how are we going to know about whether this experiment is a success or not? Have we instrumented this properly so we can tell? How are we going to say yes or no to this continuing? Mm -hmm. I mean, and 
And then that was, everything was done that way. So it allowed us to be completely out there to try things that had never been tried before, mm-hmm. but always know afterwards what had worked and what hadn't worked and how much and to what degree. And yeah. that informed the next step. Which was? Try something else. Try something I mean, else. You know, listen, I got to tell you a story about here is that, you know, at first, you know, we were pretty desperate. I mean, I, I had a, my, I had people's um, angel investment money that I was re- responsible for. Right. I had all these employees who were respo- I was responsible for. I had to figure out a way to make this work. And it wasn't like I had any shortage of things to test. But the problem is that I was kind of this perfectionist back then. Mm-hmm. And so we'd come up with these tests which you know, we're almost like little works of art. We have like custom photography or, or we'd lovingly craft the, every piece of copy and we'd spell check it and have a copy editor look and we'd stress test the site. And it might take us you know, two or three weeks to put this test together. Mm-hmm. And then we'd roll it out with great excitement and then it would fail. Right. And we'd kind of sit back dejected and say, we just wasted like three weeks. So we began mm-hmm. going faster. And then we'd do a test in a week. And it would fail and go, crap, we wasted a week. So then we do a test in two days and then in one day. And then we're doing three or four things in a day. And as you kind of can imagine, stuff is getting pretty crappy, if I can use the term. Sure. You know, misspellings and typos and images with the watermarks in them. And (sighs) we crash the site. But the reason I'm kind of telling this is that there's a huge piece of intuitive learning that came from this, which is that it didn't make a difference how bad the tests were because that if we had these beautiful works of art tests, but the idea was a bad one, the great, beautiful test wasn't going to make the difference. Mm. But conversely, if you had a good idea that resonated with a customer, no matter how crappy the test was, people immediately would raise their hands. They'd immediately shine the spotlight and say, this is important to me, that they'd call us, they'd reboot the site, they'd mm-hmm. come to the door. And yeah. that insight, which was that it was not about having good ideas, that it was about figuring out ways to test ideas quickly and cheaply and easily ah, okay. that made the difference, that was the critical insight. And that is something that I've carried with me every day since then. Well, no, yeah. Nobody knows anything. You can't right. know in advance. Right. And so if you spend all your time waiting and planning and plotting and designing these perfect, that's ridiculous. Just figure out a way to take your idea and get it out in the world immediately. That was the insight. Well, I want to get into that specific side of things, especially when we're talking about individuals who you know are not in the tech industry. They have ideas. Maybe they have that dog food idea, the same idea that you had. And how do you take it from, you know, just a, just a person who's sitting there with an idea. And then how do you, how do you carry it forth? So before we get into that, I want to take a break real quick, but when we get back, we're going to talk more about it. So you, you, you mentioned in the first half that you're in the car, you're having all these ideas for, for months. Um, and then you said that people, you know, obviously you, all you had to do was convince Reed that the idea was good, right? In that in that moment, right? You didn't have to convince your wife the idea was good. But there are people outside of your of of the just the people in the car who 
will discourage you because they, you know, they don't think your idea is good. Right. So how do you know if something like, how did you like, I guess, how do you know if it's good or not? And do you ever know in the moment? Yeah, I think you're, you are immediately drilling in onto the most important aspect of, I won't even say entrepreneurship, but of anyone who's trying to take an idea and make it real, no matter what your idea is. And the point is you can't know. It's impossible to know. Uh, and I can tell everyone out there is listening who has an idea, your idea is bad. <laughs> and I know that just because all ideas are bad, but it's your business and your job and your responsibility to figure out why is it bad. And the only way to figure out why it's bad is to try it and let the mm. world tell you why. And, and then if you're at all good about it, you'll listen carefully and from there get this glimmer of intuition about how to twist your idea just a little bit right. and try that. Yeah. You can, if you sit and in your head, I'm sorry, if you sit there and in your head, nurture it and build it up and oh, well, in that nice safe space inside your head, of course, it's going to be a beautiful, perfect idea that gets bigger <laughs> and bigger. And imagine when everyone in the world is using it. Yeah. As soon as you collide it with reality, you're going to realize the flaw or the mm -hmm. false assumption. You've got to recognize that nobody knows anything. The only way to figure out if an idea is any good is to try it. And that comes back to that previous thing we did before the break, which is you've got to figure out the quick, cheap, easy way to test it. Mm -hmm. That is the sign of a good entrepreneur, of a good idea person, is that not how good their ideas are, because yeah. ideas don't count. It's how clever they can be about figuring out quick and easy ways to test them. You know, yeah, go ahead. Well, you've talked a lot about per <laughs> you talked a lot about perseverance and how often you kind of just have to push through. But what's the difference between taking a great idea and persevering, or taking an idea that's actually stupid and everyone who told you it's stupid, they're correct, <laughs> and you're just stubborn? The thing is, there's too much uh, glorification of the idea because the ideas are, are temporal and the ideas are ephemeral and ideas are usually bad. Ideas are starting points. The thing that I listen for when I'm trying to understand, even make a personal judgment, do I want to work with this person mm -hmm. or do I want to invest in this person is not their idea. It's how well do they understand the problem they're trying to solve because the problem doesn't go away. The problem gets richer and more nuanced and more complicated. And the initial idea you came up with to solve the problem gets tossed away almost instantaneously. But as you begin to learn more about what the problem is, do you keep on trying and trying and trying? So the answer is, how do I know whether it's a good idea or a bad idea? Well, you try it. And if it's a bad idea, fine. Then you try something else. But giving up comes from when you realize I have no more ideas. I have no more ways to even approach this problem. Right. And that does happen. Uh, but you'll find that when you begin to really understand a problem and it's a genuine problem and it's a big problem, yeah, you have more ideas and you know what to do with. You know, I this reminds me of a quote because as you said, like every idea is bad, right? Um, so I have a different, more weirdly optimistic approach, which is not my MO. I'm from Philadelphia. We are very pessimistic people. But one of the, this, it reminds me of a quote from Jack Donaghy of 30 Rock and in that there are no bad ideas, only great ideas that go horribly wrong, 
right? Which which is just <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a bit, it's a joke, but I always say there are no bad ideas. There there are only good ideas. Like every idea is a good idea, but only if you push it through, right? Cuz cuz I think like I've seen people with what I would classify as a truly terrible idea and it is a thing. I my girlfriend literally has custom shampoo delivered to her with her name on it and you know that is a thing. And and while that may have been a bad idea in 97 98 it's it clearly worked now. I who knows? The pet rock is a f- really bad idea. And apparently that guy made a lot of money from that. So and I but only because he made it a reality, right? He took and I I'm assuming it's a him. He took this stupid stupid thing and made it a thing. It made it like a real thing. And so therefore, yeah, the idea is still stupid. It's still bad, but it but it worked. So is it so at that point is it really bad? Well, let's let's use the pet rock. Okay. So I don't know the story behind it, and let's just assume it's a guy. But I'm and, and let's assume it's real because I've, I've heard it so many <laughs> times, but I actually don't even know the guy's name. Oh no! But I had a pet rock, so I I, yeah, I, so did I. remember. I, I yeah. was of that age, so you know. So listen, let's imagine this guy. He's at a party. He goes, God, this is so stupid. I could probably sell a rock. Right. And he probably did not start by saying, Let's take a rock. It's about an inch and a half long. Let's make a little cardboard cage for it. Let's put clever. He didn't start like that. Right. He goes, I'm just going to try and sell a rock. That was the idea. And he, and yeah. And probably no one bought the rock except a couple people. So this is kind of funny. And then he went and said, well, let's, I'm going to sell it as a paperweight. And that didn't really work. And then he, he stumbled onto selling it as a pet. Yeah. And he stumbled onto putting it in that little clever packaging. And there's so much false startup mythology yeah. that all of a sudden this guy came up with this idea and, and it left perfectly forth, fully formed. Right, right. Yeah, that's bullshit, that's bullshit without even yeah. knowing the story. Yeah. I, I promise you, eBay did not start selling Pez dispensers. You know, and all this stuff is all the, and you know, Netflix did not start doing a late fee on a movie. Uh, it, it, it's like, we all want to simplify these things, but they are all long journeys with lots of people contributing and lots of false starts and lots of learning. And so, yeah. if, if, if you have in your head, if your criteria is it's got to be good enough out of the box to be the world changing idea I want it to be, you're never going to start because it's not, it's not. The idea that you have with Netflix was it when you had the idea you already had pre like you kind of were were creative in a box right you had constraints yet you put on yourself from from the story that I heard which was you know I wanted it to be about personalization I wanted it to be on the internet I you know it had it had to fit in this box that you would create it when you when you built the idea do you think that that's a good idea I mean I believe in creative constraints really breed like constraints breed creativity. Do you think that if you were to advise somebody, if they have an idea like, hey, okay, you have this grand idea, maybe put it in a box because you had a background in direct, direct mail and, 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 and Reed had this, you know, mathematician thing, which helped, you know, that's where that stumbling, you know, sort of worked and actually made the idea a thing. So you both had value to offer. So if someone's sitting there and they're, and they're a, an accountant. And they have an idea for a pet rocket. They've never sold anything in their lives. Is that a good fit for them, or should you, or would you advise them to say, "Hey, you're an accountant. You know, maybe build on that." 
Oh, I could riff on this for a long, long, long time because I Please. totally agree with what you're saying. And I say it a slightly different way, which is I okay. think you've got to scale your aspirations to your abilities. That, uh, for example, someone pitched me, uh, I do a lot of social entrepreneurship uh, mentoring too. And someone pitched me on, the, the, we, we're going to do this uh, tablet app for doing literacy. Uh, and it's going to be in the sub-Saharan African villages. And I went, oh, this is awesome. I go, do you have a lot of experience teaching in uh, yeah. teaching? And they go, no, just a little bit. Well, have you spent a lot of time working in any of these countries? Well, I visited there for a week or two. I, right. Do you understand the tablet? So, you know, yeah. it's ludicrous. Right. It's just right. an idea with no fundamental. Or I've got a better idea for a cats for cat scan technology. Right. Great if you are someone who works with cats. In, yeah, MRI but, so machines. Yes, totally yeah. agree. Um, you've got to pick something which you have the ability to actually do. And it usually helps to pick things that you're familiar with. Like the best idea generator of all is just simply to train yourself to look around the world and see the things that are difficult, that are this pain, with this problems. Because then the ideas pop into your head automatically. You're searching for problems to solve. But people hmm. get in trouble when they begin searching for global problems. So I'm going to solve cure malaria. <laughs> yeah, hunger. Later, after yeah. you've, you know, after you've uh, launched Microsoft, you can cure malaria. Sure. Right now, think of the things you bump into every day, the, the customer interactions that you see, the, 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 the summer job you have, the uh, hobby you do. Right, because you you're gonna you're intuitively gonna start off from a I understand the problem at a much deeper level than if you pick something you're a novice at. I mean, we picked video rental, which I knew nothing about mm -hmm. except for, as a customer, mm -hmm. and Reed knew nothing about. But we did know all the other pieces. I knew right. a lot about personalization. I knew a lot about the subscription business. I knew a lot about analytics. I knew a lot about technology, and I found within two months a person who was my jungle guide for the video rental industry and recruited the crap out of him because I yeah. knew I needed to have someone to keep me from falling into the Burmese tiger pit. Yeah, you, in that moment, you weren't solving a problem, were you? Because Blockbuster was a thing, right? There was the, Apparently, things were working fine. Or you at least yes. didn't see the problem. No, we, 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 we knew there was a problem. And there was a pro and which was twofold. One is we knew that DVD would take a long time to reach the neighborhood penetration, mm -hmm. such that a blockbuster would be willing to make a significant, a sufficient investment to stock it. Mm -hmm. So we realized that for at least the first two or three years of DVDs launch and growth, there would not be DVDs in the blockbusters. So right. that we knew we had a window. Okay. And the other one was that Blockbuster had the central pillar of their business model, something called managed dissatisfaction, which meant they recognized that people hated them. Mm. Uh, it was not a beloved process. It was hard to find the movies you wanted. It was They weren't in stock. You had, I mean, we realized that this was not a good, flawless, wonderful process. And right. in many ways, Blockbuster's success was in spite of the fact they were doing something that people disliked. Right. I mean, it, it sounds it sounded like they had a ton of micro problems, right? 
Well, fundamentally, their business was built on doing something that people viewed as a necessary evil, which mm. is paying late fees, having oh, to yeah. get in their car to go and wander aimlessly up and down the aisles to find something to watch, then having to go back again to return it. Yeah. So th- we, we said, I wonder if we could remove all the friction, help you immediately find something you want, have it always in stock, have you do it from your chair, have mm-hmm. it just show up in your mailbox. Yeah. We suspected that might, might be a way to solve the problem in a better way than the way Blockbuster was doing it. And if right. we could, it would unlock an $8 billion category. <laughs> right. And you, uh, you mentioned this, the idea that, or not the idea, but how solving problems, like understanding the problem is the real fundamental of, of, an, of a good idea, I would imagine, right? For a business. And um, I, I kind of equate that to how do you, well, how do you train yourself to identify problems? It, it feels like a, a skill to learn because it's similar to what I think a, a stand-up comedian has to do in their daily life. They have to find the funny in the normal, in the mundane, and the things around them. And it's a skill that you kind of build over time. And I feel like finding or at least seeing the problem, even if it's not abundantly clear to you, is a skill that you develop. It's very true. And that is part of the skill. But I say the deeper skill is workshopping your jokes. That right. before uh, someone goes and does their HBO special and does their 60 minutes, yeah, they've the whole spent year. 600, 100 hours in the little clubs trying out not just is that joke funny, but is this word funny? Is this pause right. funny? Is, and that is what is the skill here, is yeah. that you have a glimpse that there might be something here in mm-hmm. doing video from the comfort of a chair but wow yeah the amount of time you've got to spend workshopping those jokes is huge yeah it's relative to the initial that's the work, insight right that's the work and yeah. that's the skill and, right. and, and that's what you you can have the glimmer that it's funny and you don't get anywhere without that true but believe me when you see a george carlin not see here george carlin and <laughs> yeah. you see him do these unbelievable riffs and you go how does he do that it's because he was willing to do more work than anybody else to get that perfect right and it, and it kind of like it's kind of speaks to that overnight success we see the we see the end product and we think wow like netflix was born and perfectly and and george carlin's jokes he's riffing that off the top of his head but no this is serious <laughs> work behind the scenes that you don't see for for a long period of time you know, it, that is, it, it's a, what you're saying is exactly why I wanted to write a book, you know, 16 years after I left Netflix, mm-hmm. is I wanted to write That'll Never Work because I wanted people to see what really does go into starting a company. Yeah. That it is not being on Shark Tank and it's not going to parties and it's not pitching. It is this repetitive process of constantly iterating on ideas. It's the struggling against these incredible setbacks. It's building this team. It's the fun times, the funny times, the disappointing times. Yeah. I wanted to paint a real picture of what this was. Um, and I think in some ways it's the designed to be the antidote or the antithesis to what's presented in popular culture about what it means to be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. where it's all shark tank all the time. Right. And what do you say to somebody who has an idea right now in their wheelhouse, knows the problem inside and out, 
but they don't have a Reed Hastings. They don't have a $1.9 million check. What do you say to that person? How do you get, how do you tell them to start? What are you waiting for? For God's sake, this barriers that you have in your mind, I promise you are false. You would not believe how much time I spend talking to people who say, I can't, I have this great idea, whatever. Uh, but I can't start because I don't have enough I need money. to finish my degree. I need an MBA. I need a computer I science. I can't yeah. raise money. I don't have a co-founder. I have a kids. I got a mortgage. Blah, blah, blah. I'm, in, I'm in a little town in Argentina. I've heard them all, and they're all ridiculous, that if you have an idea, the only way to figure out whether it's going to work is to take that first step and do something. You want to convince someone to be a co-founder. You want to convince someone to fund you. Prove that your idea is actually a good idea by figuring out how to quickly demonstrate that it is. And that is the cleverness. Test something, try something, build something, make something, do something. You're going to learn more in one hour of doing it than in six months of thinking about it. Mm. Get off your ass. (laughs) And and that would be the equivalent of uh, mailing a a CD, right? It's like you you at least proved that that concept worked. Exactly. And it wasn't like we went, oh, we're going to test this. We're going to build a mailing. We're going to build a mailing envelope. No, we're going to buy a gift greeting card envelope. Oh, let's go find a DVD. Oh, I think a CD is close enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is the skill is finding a proxy, which allows you to begin learning about the world and your ideas, um, your ideas place in it. It does not need to be repeatable or scalable at first. Mm. Here, listen, I'll give you a specific example if I have time here, really briefly. Yeah. So, woman, woman came to me, uh, had an idea. She goes, "It'd be cool if we could do peer-to-peer clothing rental, where basically I know I have all this clothing in my closet, and I think other people might want to rent that, and I could rent theirs." And she goes, "I might need to raise some money, and how do I find a co-founder, and how do I build my initial app?" And I go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Let's begin seeing." Some, let's collide this idea with reality. Go get a piece of paper, get a Sharpie, write on the piece of paper, want to borrow my clothes? Knock and paste it on your door. Right. And let's see what happens. Let's see, first of all, if anyone knocks. If they do, let's see what happens when they're looking through your clothes. Is there a fit problem? Is there a taste problem? Let's see if they do borrow your clothes. Let's see how you feel when they come back stained or dirty or what you have to do to get them repaired, or how you feel about this. Let's begin learning by doing nothing more than writing on a piece of paper with a Sharpie. You can't run a business like this, but that's not what you're doing now. You're trying to understand, is this idea real? And she did that. And little by little by little, she accumulated evidence about this problem and ways to solve it. And so, yeah, six months later, when she was going to raise money, Mm-hmm. And someone said, how do you I know this idea is a good one? She could talk your ear off about, about the yeah. evidence she had, what people would pay, how long the rentals were, how much she'd have to do for cleaning and what percentage. Mm-hmm. And wow, that's the person you want to follow. You want, that's yeah, the that's the person back in investing. Yeah. It sounds like rent a swag, actually. It sounds like that exact business model. But does <laughs> uh, she yeah, ever become? She, a, 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 yes. She, I mean, she, it's a smaller business because mm-hmm. she's still in school. Sure. But she, she is moving ahead and she's moving wow. ahead based on finding a way to, I, I call it validation hacking. 
a way to validate her idea without actually doing it for real. Right. I, I only have like a single story that um, is almost, it's a little different, but a friend of my, or an ex-girlfriend of mine, her dad wanted to start a business where he sold uh, mo- mobility scooters. And all he did was get business cards printed. He had no, he had no shop. He had no product. He had nothing. He had a little bit, you know, he knew he, he used to sell them in the past for a bigger company. He just got business cards and went door to door, just knocked on door to door until he had enough business where he could take, you know, a 50% deposit and go actually buy the scooter. And then he would do all the, uh, the, the repairs himself until he could hire somebody. It's just, everything was just started with a business card. I love that story. Yeah. Because and it is it, another entrepreneur I know. He he had an idea. You know, he was at a party. It was eleven o'clock at night. It was raining, and they ran out of beer, and all began arguing oh. about who was turning to go out and find the beer. The usual, you know, uh, millennial problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he had the idea. You know, this is kind of a while ago, but goes basically my phone knows where I am. It knows my taste. Has my credit card database of open liquor stores. Great idea. But same thing as your friend, rather than saying, I'm going to raise money, I'm going to find a technical co-founder, I'm going to build an app, I'm going to test this. He just had business cards printed up that said, need beer? Call me with a cell phone number. And he'd stand outside apartments on weekends and hand those cards to people. And they would call him and he'd get in his bike and he'd go to the liquor store and he'd buy the beer and he'd, he'd used to put on a Viking costume, Mm. don't ask, and then go up in the elevator and he did this for months and learned that in fact it was a crappy idea that it was oh, all really? small orders <laughs> they were everybody was drunk they were all concentrated there was no repeat business but he learned it immediately right he learned it for the price of running some sheets of paper through a uh, a printer um, at, but it, what it did was it informed him cuz people would say to him hey uh, you know one person said listen i uh I, I, I'm an office manager and we do these beer parties twice a week and I'm carrying cases of beer. Would you deliver to our office? And he did that with the business card thing. And then finally he stumbled on restocking refrigerators, which is in people's homes. Oh. So, but that all happened without a technical co-founder, without writing a line of code, without raising any money. It all happened with business cards and it was not repeatable. It is not scalable, Yeah, but it's, validation hacking. It's figuring out if your idea is a good one without actually doing it and doing it quickly. I was really hoping at the end of that story, you're really like, and he has this beer business that's thriving and here's his phone number because you could call him right now. And especially in the, especially during this time, I'm like, heck yeah. But yeah, that's it. That's, that's yeah. You can find out because that, you know what, as soon as you said that story, I'm like, that's a brilliant idea. And of course I would, you know, he tested it quickly and we, we, I would, we both were wrong. Learning it's bad ideas, equal as valuable as learning it's a good right. idea, but if, if, without wasting six months and and your ego and your money and your and then time. yeah, maybe during that time too, you can pivot to something that does work, and you may not have exactly even known right. that. Right. Cool. Well, uh, but you pivot because you're learning more about the problem space. Yeah. Right. Anyway, that's well, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate having you. Where can people? learn more about you and your work and your book. So the best way to really figure, uh, learn more about everything I've learned, I tried to put it into my book, which is called That'll Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. But you can also follow my everyday rantings and ravings on Twitter at MB Randolph or on uh, 
Instagram at that will never work. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Good luck to everybody. Thank you. And if you missed anything, of course, we're going to have everything in the show notes. Don't you worry about that. You can check your preferred podcast app or you can visit listenmoneymatters.com slash show. And please subscribe wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about us. Point them to your favorite episodes. Perhaps it's this one. And hopefully they'll become a subscriber as well. And if you have any questions or topics that you want to discuss on future episodes of this show, please email us as always, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. And all the tools and resources that we normally mention on this show are available at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. Thanks, guys. Later. Later. Please tell your friends about this show. (laughs) 